one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space 909 for the week of Monday, August 21st, 2017, Eclipse Week. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. How you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, welcome back as well, Kat Robinson. Hi, it's a pleasure to be back. I miss Woo-hoo. you guys. <laughs> we are glad to have you back. And of course, welcome as always, Mark Ratterman. It's good to be here. We've got the gang together. Now, I must make a note right now that this episode has come out the week of the great United States solar eclipse, which is happening on August 21st, 2017. As a result of this, Kat and I will both be on the road traveling to see said eclipse, and Gene, you're going to be on your way to podcast movement, so this episode is being recorded before the eclipse. Therefore, you're going to have to... Stay tuned for episode 910 to hear our full Eclipse coverage as well, and it's going to be very exciting. But in the meantime, there's still plenty of news to cover that has happened in the last week alone. So let's get started with that, and we're going to start off with some of the U.S. launches that happened. So the first one we're going to start with is United Launch Alliance ending their four-month hiatus with the return of an Atlas V launch. The Atlas V 401, meaning 4-meter fairing, with zero solid rocket boosters, and one second-stage Centaur engine, successfully took off on today's recording date, Friday, August 18th, 2017, at 8.29 a.m. Eastern Time, after a brief delay due to some issues with temperatures in that second stage. The launch carried TDRS-M, the Tracking Data Relay Satellite M. This was the third and final of the newest generation of their tracking and data relay satellites. These satellites help get information from low Earth orbit down to the Earth for many a satellite, including the International Space Station. The launch went everything near nominal, and United Launch Alliance continues their pretty much perfect launch record so far. Yes, Sawyer, uh, uh, it's not only the International Space Station that uh, depends on the tracking data relay satellite network, it's also Hubble and a few other on-orbit assets that the United States has. The satellite is currently called TDRS-M. It will be up there for uh, a lifetime of about 15 years. They're hoping to go through a successful commissioning process that should take upward uh, just about three or four months. And then once uh, the contractor, in this case Boeing, goes ahead and gives the okay, they'll throw the keys over to NASA and TDRS-M will become TDRS-13. 
the first Tedris was launched on board, I believe, the space shuttle. This was Tedris A, launched uh, April 4 of 1983. So far, the, the, the program has been, been a success. And as you have indicated, Sawyer, this is, this is sort of the last one of this particular generation. I know they're looking at other modes of communication and other modes of, of satellite communication and so on. So keep your eyes peeled. There's going to be some very interesting stuff coming that way because there was some talk about it not only if I recall at the press conference but if I also recall we got a preview of it too uh, it was during the New Horizons uh, mission we were looking at discussing the possibility of laser communications and so on so a whole new world of uh, of deep space communications is, is opening up and but uh, this particular satellite is going to be a, a linchpin for the International Space Station and for for Hubble and for any other uh, orbiting asset that the United States has. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it's crucial. Before this, you know, you're reliant only upon ground stations. And if you were out of range, well, then you had no communications. This happened quite a bunch with shuttle. Uh, and now, you know, this has allowed all sorts of spacecraft to have continuous ground communication with minimal to no loss of signal time and to get higher uh, amounts of data back as well, which now that the International Space Station is sending back live 4K video streams and things like that, it takes a toll on the network. So the more satellites you have, the more data you can send back. And uh, this is used by pretty much every single spacecraft in low Earth orbit. These are really multi-purpose satellites. Yeah, Sawyer, the the anten the two antennas that are on board uh Tetris, the two main ones, these things are about these things are huge. They're about fifteen feet in diameter, so they're not exactly what I'd say, you know, tiny. Uh this is this is a serious spacecraft. So uh it it and again, it's gonna have an extraordinarily long lifetime. So uh so far so good. We'll keep folks posted um on the commissioning process and uh but again, that commissioning process will take about maybe three or four months. And again, also of note, as we just said, this is United Launch Alliance's return to flight after four months of, you know, being quiet. All we hear lately is about the SpaceX launches because they've been a little more frequent. But uh, that puts them, if I recall correctly, at 120 successful launches with no major failures. Only one or two that have gone into slightly lower orbits, but the spacecraft are still operational. So that's 120 successful ULA launches, and the Atlas V supposedly has a perfect track record. So uh, that is impressive. Even if they don't launch as often, their launches are reliable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, right now the Atlas V is the most reliable launch vehicle on the planet, uh, bar none. And uh, the others still have a have a long way to go to go ahead and get that uh, that title, but. Our friends over at SpaceX are are, are are catching up a little bit. We'll uh, we'll just continue to wish them well and continue to wish them luck. But uh, right now, uh, United Launch Alliance has has got the uh, got the lion's share of that uh, that perfect launch record. Once again, the uh, Atlas V will start to pick up a little bit again, uh, despite how quiet it's been. The next launch after this one for the Atlas V is currently scheduled for no earlier than September 11th, and that'll be an NROL-42 satellite out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. The Atlas V's return to the Cape no earlier than September 25th for another NROL launch. And so from there, it picks up a little bit more in terms of Atlas launches. Mm -hmm. 
And don't forget we, the, that the, uh, the Vulcan booster is waiting in the wings. And uh, that's going to be another one we'll have to go ahead and watch closely. It's loosely based on Atlas, but some, some significant changes. Yes, indeed. So once again, congratulations to United Launch Alliance and to the entire team working on NASA's TDRS program on another successful launch. So, as we continue along then, uh, we did have one other launch, and that was to the International Space Station. Before we do that, I do want to mention about the International Space Station and send congratulations to the Russian cosmonauts aboard the ISS, who just recently completed a successful spacewalk outside the orbiting platform. That spacewalk occurred on Thursday, August 17th, 2017. Two cosmonauts stepped outside the Piers airlock on the Russian side of the space station, and that was Expedition 52 Commander Fyodor Yurchenkin, as well as Sergei Ryzensky. They completed a 7-hour and 34-minute spacewalk, the first Russian spacewalk in more than a year. And they took care of a lot of things outside the station, and one of the most visual and coolest of them has to be the launching of some small CubeSats, or small sets. I love CubeSats. <laughs> and it was just cool to see those flying away. I mean, guaranteed you're going to have some people saying that there is your proof of UFOs, but other than that, to see them shooting off in the cameras and everything, if you didn't get to see it, there's some cool pictures of just... These little satellites flying away as they're doing their spacewalk. It's really cool. Two cosmonauts walk into space. Sounds like they'll set up for a joke. <laughs> not, tu- not touching that. Not going anywhere. I'm disappointed in you, Sawyer. Usually you're, you're quite ready with the jokes to make us groan. That's the start of a joke. That's not the rest of the joke. Yeah, well, one says to the other, hold my satellite. And then he drops it. There you go. That's Where's my foam bad call brick? <laughs> This was the 202nd spacewalk supporting International Space Station Assembly and Maintenance, and is the seventh so far this year, including six others on the U.S. side. So that spacewalk actually had a major part in the next mission that we are going to talk about, and that is the SpaceX CRS-12 mission. This became very important as the launch date was originally August 13th, 2017 after some shuffling as if you listen to last episode you'll learn a little bit more about that Um, but due to some issues getting things ready for that static fire test they normally do the static fire test was pushed back one day as was the launch attempt that meant their only launch date was august 14th 2017 if it did not go they were going to have to give way of the range to the tedris launch and would be launching no earlier than August 19th or 20th, instead of the original 14th. The main reason being that they didn't want the vehicle arriving at the exact same time as there's two Russians outside doing a spacewalk. That could cause some problems. So that left one day for their launch, and they couldn't just leave it hanging out there in space because you've got live science experiments and things on there that are time-sensitive, and if you just leave them chilling out there, well they might not actually chill if they're supposed to keep cold or things like that. So, this was their one and only attempt at 12.31.37 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And it went, sending up over 6,000 pounds to the International Space Station of supplies and, most importantly, science. What was really cool about this mission is that about 75% of the payload was all science-related, not just supplies. That's awesome. Yeah, so the, the science investigations alone uh, were 
2019 pounds which is which comprised the uh excuse the expression the dragon share of the and you uh, think you the need cart- the foam brick for me <laughs> <laughs> had to it was there i took the opportunity the numbers that we were given by nasa was that it was going to be about 4800 pounds of science going up and coming down about 31 days after will be 2400 pounds of science that's a lot of science junk in your trunk I like it. <laughs> and there was indeed in this in this case with the uh, cosmic ray energetics and mass experiment. Which they called ISS cream. Like ice cream, ISS cream. Just just <gasps> had to. Fantastic. That is that's great. I believe that the uh, Sawyer, according to what I'm looking at here from NASA, the cream experiment, if we'll we'll bring that up, uh, will be attached to uh, to Kibo, if I believe, uh, the Japanese experiment module out there. Correct. Um, the exposed facility. Yep. And this is a cosmic ray experiment, if I'm not, not mistaken, if I'm reading this correctly. And the right. data is going to be used to address uh, the history of cosmic rays. And I believe cream is going to be up there for about three years. And it's to help uh, astronomers go ahead and build a an understanding of uh, of the universe and and a much better understanding of cosmic rays in general. So uh, we'll have to keep an eye out and watch to see uh, how how that experiment uh, all goes. Right. And I was asking them about the location of it. And uh, the reason that it's going to be on Kibo is because besides the fact that it's synced into the coolant loop and everything on the station, it will have the widest swath of sky to be able to look at. So uh, basically, it's going to have the largest area that it can look at up there. Uh, it'll get more rays and as a result, hopefully more science back. So that's why it's on Kibo. Yeah, it makes sense. So that had a lot of science on board. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of that science more in just a second. But in case you're unaware, I was at the CRS-12 launch covering it for Talking Space. It did launch on time beautifully at 12.31 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, I viewed it from the NASA Causeway. Last time, I viewed it from the press site, which gave fantastic views of the launch, and I'm sure if you didn't hear Block 4. The Block 4 is its newest iteration, but not final. The Block 5 will be the finalized one of that, and they'll be working on the Block 4 over the next 10 launches or so to get that refined, ahead of Block 5 being set in stone for crewed missions. The Block 4, in case you are unaware, basically means improved engines, improved performance, and boy does that thing go a heck of a lot faster than it did before in terms of going up, and in terms of the slowing down part, it skyrocketed. I saw the first landing come down, uh, for CRS-11 at least, and that, it was pretty quick, but for CRS-12, boy did that thing shoot down fast. We were a little worried that it wasn't going to slow down in time, but of course... It did. So um, we'll present to you the launch audio for CRS-12 so you get an idea of what it sounded like from the causeway, which may not be as loud, but you still get the feel for it. So go ahead. Crank up your car volume if you're in the car. Crank up your headphones all the way until it says it's not safe to listen at this loud volume and enjoy.
What amazed me about this one is, again, just how sustained it is. I mean, with the other launches, you hear them for about 30 seconds to a minute or so, and then it's, you know, it's like a bell curve in a way. It goes up, it gets pretty loud, and then it quiets down. This one, it gets loud, and then it kind of peaks off, and then it gets louder again, and then it slowly quiets down. And again, even from about five or six miles away, instead of being like the usual three, you still get an idea of just how sustained that is and just the force of it. Yeah, that was oh, music to my ears, of course. But that was really, <laughs> I was like, wow, this is going on and on. And it's really going. So kudos, SpaceX. I like I love me a good rocket sound. Yeah, I'm that that was my same reaction is it's still going. <laughs> it's going and going. <laughs> Remember those Energizer Bunny commercials? <laughs> yep. Give me a rocket that sings forever and I'll be happy for my whole life. Sounds like Falcons for you. <laughs> you were comparing it with Shuttle and the you know Mark you me and and Sawyer uh were there for a few shuttle launches and yeah, uh, I'd, I'd have to say the noise level is incomparable. What did it feel like from back there, Sawyer? Because I know Shuttle, when it launched, man, it, it let you know about it. I mean, it, there was just really a, a, a thud right in the center of your chest, and it just didn't want to let go. And Atlas did that to us too, Mark, if you recall, uh, a little bit anyway, uh, from on top of the uh, the launch control center when we 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 saw the the Mars Science Lab or Curiosity launch, and that was that 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 had a very interesting sound to it too. But I have a funny feeling that the louvers on the vehicle assembly building were kind of playing with the acoustics on on there, and there was almost like a sort of like a staccato yell to it. I was talking with a few people there, and it certainly is comparable to shuttle is what we agreed upon. You don't get the same feel. That's the one thing I meant. You get so much more noise, but the vibration, it's there. It's just not as strong. I think the noise is more from the nine engines as opposed to the force of those solid rocket boosters, which those things shook you to your core. And even seeing the 541 of the Atlas, it gives you some of that vibration, but... Nothing compares to shuttle in terms of that. You specifically chose that area near the LZ point to see the landing uh, right forward. And if anybody's following Sawyer on Twitter or following the Talking Space uh, Twitter account as well, uh, there were some very exquisite uh, photographs of that uh, coming down. So I would invite you to go ahead and either look at uh, uh, Sawyer's Twitter feed. I RT'd both, but... Um, or check out the Talking Space Twitter feed and uh, and take a look at uh, th those photographs. But but Sawyer, you were like right there, and that that sonic boom had come through as you know the the uh, that first stage sort of announces it, its arrival. What was that like? Uh, a little startling. <laughs> Which uh, I'll put those pictures that you talked about in the show notes as well. But uh, the when I was at the press site. Uh, I was told that about three seconds or so after it lands, you'll hear the sonic booms. And they were pretty much spot on. Doesn't mean I didn't jump 20 feet in the air when it happened, but they were exactly right with the timing on that. Uh, it was pretty loud for CRS-11 at the press site. Um, but again, the sound was carrying quite a distance away. Now move to the NASA Causeway, which is a few miles away. We're talking two, maybe three miles away, if that, from landing zone one. Besides the fact that I got to see the entirety of landing, including the landing legs coming out and it kicking up the dust as it settled down, uh, which I made a great gif of that and posted that on Twitter. 
but I was not aware of basic math and basic physics in that speed of sound set. Um, and I was closer by about three miles, which means it's going to be seconds earlier than it was before. So silly me was like, oh, okay, you know, it'll be about three seconds or so after landing. I'm taking photos. If you look at my photo set, uh, I deleted this one from the GIF, but it's just landing, landing, back of a guy's shirt, landing, <laughs> landing. You can tell the exact photo when I had my finger on the trigger and the booms hit. It startled the heck out of me. <laughs> I wish someone had uh, it was... you. I would have loved to like get that. <laughs> the look on my face was probably jaw open going, what in the world? Because <laughs> we're talking, this was... At, a little bit before the landing legs were starting to come out or just about as the landing legs were unfolding probably about five or six seconds still before touchdown uh and it, it was quite startling as it was ridiculously loud and the echo from it that was the biggest thing from this one was it was echoey it was booming it was loud the echo from it it was amazing with this landing audio I'm going to attempt to do something in post-production here, as I'll be editing this one. Last one, I increased the volume a little bit on the landing sound. Spoiler alert, from the CRS-11 mission. I'm going to leave the volume on this one as is. I will not touch the volume level in any way, shape, or form. And I'm also not going to warn you when it's going to happen. So, uh... Again, crank up your stereo as loud as it'll go uh, and see if you can feel the vibrations as I did. Oh, and uh, again, not warning you when it's going to happen, so uh, <laughs> see if you get the same surprised reaction that I had. Even anticipating it still startled me. Wow. Yeah, Gene, I sent that to you a short while uh, after landing, the unedited version, pretty much like everyone else just heard. Is that not <laughs> loud? I mean, I, I you know, I, I'd never heard Shuttle come home and announce herself as she was about, about to go ahead and land. I'm just wondering how that compares with... Uh, uh, with shuttle announcing herself because the again there was no engines on shuttle as uh, she was coming home you just heard the two sonic booms and then you know her kind of stately swooping in and and, and landing at the uh, the slf this thing was all the blaze i mean with, with, with its engines going and and so on um i'm just wondering what that was like to even witness Sawyer as far as seeing, you know, also hearing that and seeing it. Yeah, I never got to hear what a shuttle landing was like. Mark, what's your input on um, hearing the audio of that, at least, and what you heard from shuttle landings? Uh, first shuttle landing I was at Cape Kennedy for, uh, I was late. I missed the bus out to the SLF and uh, was standing with about four other people at the press site and they were looking up in the sky and I looked and I never could see anything and, and heard the sonic boom through the loudspeakers that were uh, all around the, uh, the press site carrying the audio from the NASA commentary. And I thought, that's odd. I heard them in the speakers, but I didn't hear it here. 
and then sure enough the appropriate number of seconds later I heard it there at the press site. So it was a real good illustration of the speed of sound and the uh, the distance between two points and how it can uh, be different. Um, I don't know they're pretty sharp pretty distinctive when you're at the SLF and the the two I saw there uh, were both night landings and or pre-dawn landings I guess one of them that I remember the time of but um, you know there it was a case of um, knowing it was coming having a rough idea of when it was and when it happened it just being a very exhilarating um, you know just to put a real charge to to your feeling for for knowing that it was there as far as the sound um, I haven't been there for a uh, SpaceX landing so I don't know well that one I can take care of um, at least you've heard the audio of it now but like you were saying Gene uh, the idea of seeing it as well as hearing it and what's really interesting is the three sonic booms as opposed to the shuttles two which, from what I understand from all the SpaceX people I've spoken with, it is two sonic booms. The third is an echo that comes from it being so close to the ground when it actually happens that it bounces back up off the ground and it happens again. That's that's fascinating because you can actually hear the echo in, in in the recording. That's what I loved about being as close as I was for this one is that echo, despite the cars driving in the background, is still so prominent. Which, in case you're wondering, I was literally right up against the road of the NASA causeway, right by the bridge between the NASA and the ITL causeways, if anybody knows the area. Um, and one view, dead on, right this little cutout in the trees is the launch pad. And then you just swivel, like, you know, 45, 60 degrees or so to the right, and boom, there's the landing zone. And boy, that thing coming down to the sky, it looks like it's going to come right on top of your head. And then to hear it come down. And the coolest part is, again, the fact that the engines are still firing as it comes down. So after those sonic booms, when it touches down, like you heard in that, you could still hear the engine firing to slow itself down. And you can kind of tell the exact moment when the engines cut off as opposed to when it actually landed, which, spoiler alert, people cheering was the second it landed. The, when the audio just got drastically quiet in the matter of a second or so, that's the quick engine shutdown. I, every time I watch one of those things, my, my head goes back to an old, to my childhood and the old Space 1999 series, watching the Eagles land, you know, if everybody's familiar familiar with that and just, just seeing that happen. Or even uh, the, the George Powell movies of seeing the, the large uh, spacecraft land on its landing legs on the moon or Mars or anything like that. You can almost watching this. You can almost understand why NASA wants to go ahead and look at the technology that that SpaceX is using, because in order to go ahead, and I'm going to reiterate this, in order to get to Mars, we have to figure out how to land something the size of like a three-story building on the surface of the planet. So, the the technology SpaceX has, has developed to land that first stage may come in really, really handy when it's time to go ahead and figure out how we're going to land large structures on the surface of Mars. Exactly. Plus, again, that reusability, which, um, interestingly enough, this one I don't believe had the new titanium grid fins on it, but the older ones. And either way, though, that Block 4, that thing goes fast. And... Uh, if you get a chance to watch back the landing on that, it comes flying down, stops just in time, and as you heard, left uh, quite the impression on all of those that were watching. So, uh, a spectacular launch with that. 
So there were a bunch of interesting things on this flight, and um, most of them being science. One of them we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, but in terms of science, there were some really cool experiments on board. There were a lot of smaller ones that went up with the company NanoRacks. There was the large one, of course, ISS Cream, the cosmic rays. There was actual ice cream that went up to the astronauts as well. Um, but of all the science experiments, one that fascinated me the most wasn't necessarily because of the experiment, but because of who was sending it. It was a Boy Scout troop from Chicagoland, just outside the major metropolitan area of Chicago in Illinois, that had come up with an experiment and sent it to the International Space Station. And I found that beyond fascinating of, you know, it's not just about tying knots and uh, setting campfires. And I'll let them talk a little bit about their experiment and hear from the scout leader as well as to why they're sending something to the International Space Station as a group of Boy Scouts. Can I start with your names please again? Okay, my name's Elliot Lee. Andrew Frank. All right, can you talk a little bit about the experiment you have going up on uh, CRS-12? Yeah, so our experiment is a known cancer-causing substance and an organism that we're going to send up into space, and we're going to see the mutation rate if, if it's different in space than on Earth. So what made you decide to come up with this idea out of all the possible ideas? Um, so we had a, like a troop meeting for it, basically. Um, they announced that we were going to be having this like space project. It's like, it was like a competition, right? So we got everyone to submit their ideas, and then we just were narrowing them down for a really long time. Uh, we voted on a lot of them. Uh, we ended up getting it down to around four or five ideas, and then we actually combined two of them to get what we have now. So how exactly does the experiment work? It mainly runs on software, only because the astronauts can't touch it. And the software, it controls all the sensors. And basically, the only thing it does is it, is it logs data into the SD card and our SD board. So what exactly was your guys' roles in this experiment? Um, so, we, well, we have like a full team of boys, about 12 boys now, that are have been working on it. And we kind of change, I guess, change roles a lot during it. Um, in the beginning, we were learning a lot. Um, we separated into different teams, like... Uh, hardware and software and we were really just learning about individual aspects of it and then a lot of people just kind of moved around so there's people that work on everything um, myself I worked a lot with the sensors and software of it all so if people don't really think of Boy Scouts and you know working with uh, known cancerous substances <laughs> what do you guys say to people that you know think that Boy Scouts is just not tying and you know camping well, times change, and we're in the technology era. Of course, Boy Scouts, we're, we're used to outdoor camping. We're used to a lot of um, fun and the outdoors. However, we have to incorporate some technology to keep up with the modern world. It's amazing. So what are you guys hoping to learn from your experiment when it comes back? Um, so we're hoping from it that we could use this information for cancer research or maybe human tissue growth uh, because it's based on cell mutation, which is related to both of those. So what's next after it comes back? What are the steps that you guys do when it comes back? Uh, before it comes back, we're going to work on some merit badges. And then after it comes <laughs> back, uh, we're going to analyze all the pictures that it took. And then we're going to uh, look at some of the sensors that co cooperate with the pictures. And we're going to log how many cells have mutated hourly. Do you guys get a special badge for getting something flown in space? 
Uh, they don't have one for that. Yeah. Yet. We're, the <laughs> first, we're the first group that ever did this. They don't have a badge yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are the but, engineers, the pioneers for this. But we yeah. are going to get a patch for our pockets that has been to space that we get to wear that nobody else gets yeah. to wear. So how did the idea come about then as one of the scout leaders to do something like this? So we had a very strong STEM chairman at our council level who negotiated a contract with cases to let three units, three groups, go to the station. We were one. Uh, second group is uh, going to be here in November, and the third group had to drop out. They uh, had fa uh, some family issues they had to solve. So uh, just the two of us now. And that got negotiated, and they rolled this out. Uh, the adult core... Uh, mentor team formed we went to a troop and the troop said yeah we'll do that and here we are you must be really proud as one of the scout leaders for having come this far oh beyond proud i'm not sure what's out there beyond proud but i'm i'm well past that and his name is mr McFarland. oh yes norman McFarland. okay is there anything else you guys want to say it's just a yeah. once in a lifetime opportunity how about go cubs <laughs> <laughs> They're from Chicago. Of course, they have to root for the Cubs. Of course, indeed. Yeah, I, I, I'd say, Sawyer, those guys got their space exploration badge pretty much sewn up. There is one that the scouts have, but uh, uh, the requirements are a little different, and I'm sure that uh, uh, they don't include yet an experiment on the International Space Station, but gosh darn it, they, they should get a couple of more badges for, for the good work. And uh, it's good, too, to see a group like the Boy Scouts getting involved uh, with getting an experiment on the International Space Station. And so you had mentioned that Casus had a lot to do with this? Yeah, exactly. Like they had said also in the interview, they reached out to Casus and uh, teamed up with NanoRacks, who we've had on the show a few times and, you know, gotten to know them. Uh, and they worked together to get this experiment uh, up on board. And again, the fact that this is a Boy Scout troop, and, and like they said, you know, the importance of STEM becoming a part of everything now, and what better way to get STEM involved? And again, the fact that there's no badge for it yet, there's the space exploration, but uh, we were joking that they need to get a I had an item flown in space merit badge now. Yeah, maybe they need, need a space experimentation badge. Uh, again, Sawyer, congratulations to, uh, to, to those kids. Like, gosh darn it, I'm looking at all these opportunities. I, I really wish I had them when I was growing up. Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, these kids realize what a unique opportunity they had. And hats off to Casus for uh, helping this particular Boy Scout troop get, uh, get through all the, uh, I don't want to say red tape, but that's the best way I can put it, and uh, make sure this experiment flies and, and, and flies well. So uh, hats off to Casus and, and many, many thanks. And definitely get them my junk went to space badge. I'll put some junk in the space trunk. And it came back. <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely and just as an aside too coming up in a, in a future talking space episode we're going to be uh talking some stem with uh, another stem podcast over at uh, podcast movement and uh looking forward to uh to doing the joint episode we're going to have a, a few moments over at the uh, podcast pavilion where we'll, we'll record the segment together and uh 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the future of, of STEM and, and how it relates to uh, to this particular industry in, in general and how can how can podcasting go ahead and, and help uh, help get the word out there about uh, about STEM related uh, uh, activities. And this is just one case. Now, another thing that flew aboard the uh, SpaceX mission wasn't actually on the Dragon. And in my opinion, this ended up being the most fascinating thing of this entire mission. It was a sticker that flew aboard the first stage that launched and then relanded. Sounds so minuscule, but it has such a deeper meaning. I had the honor of getting to talk with one of the uh, reporters who was from KWTX based out of Waco, Texas. And they were here covering a story about the mayor of McGregor, Texas. If anybody is aware, McGregor, Texas is home to one of these SpaceX testing facilities. But that wasn't the reason they were there. It had nothing to do with actually SpaceX being in their district. Instead, it had to do with their son. Unfortunately, their son, Red, passed away at the age of 15 in an ATV accident. And uh, the people at SpaceX decided to do something kind for the mayor and his family, considering that Rhett, their son, was one of the kindest kids in the community. And I had the spectacular honor of getting a chance to talk to the mayor of McGregor, Texas, and his wife. And uh, I'm just going to play the story and warn you if you have tissues to keep them nearby. This one is both heart-wrenching and inspiring at the same time. I could start with your name and title, please. You bet. Um, Jimmy Herring, and I'm the uh, mayor of the city of McGregor. And my name is Lorna Herring, and I'm his wife and Rhett's mom. Uh, so can you talk a little about why you're at this launch specifically? Yes. Uh, so my son died, Rhett, in December, uh, December 28, 2015. And out of his death came a movement called the Rhett Revolution. We didn't start it. His classmates, his peers, his friends started it because he was a unique kid that liked to... Uh, he was unique in that he had a real way of connecting with people who were in need of love, uh, compassion, kindness, grace. He was just good to a lot of people, young and old alike. He had a really magnetic personality. And so this movement started out of his death for that very purpose, to continue the revolution of love and kindness and grace for people. And uh, so we have a very close friend of ours. His name is Kelly Oliver, who actually works for SpaceX. And about six months ago, he says, hey, Jimmy Jack, I got this idea. And uh, a sticker had been made by another one of our friends, one of Lorna's former students, Robbie Anderson. He had made these stickers called the Revolution, and it's love spelled backwards inside the Revolution. And they had shown up all over cars and bumper stickers uh, in McGregor. And so Kelly had the idea that he wanted to put one of these stickers on the inside of the uh, first stage booster see if we could send it to space and then get it also to land. And he said, hey, Jimmy Jack, I got this idea. What do you think? I talked to Lauren about it. She goes, oh, yeah, let's do it. And so Kelly made all the connections that he needed to. And uh, about a month ago, we got to put the sticker on the rocket there in McGregor. And then SpaceX invited us to come out and be part of this. And that's why we're here. It's the first launch. We've been, as mayor, I've been a part of SpaceX for since its inception. I guess which was 2003 or so, but this is the first time we've got to see anything even remotely close like this, up close and personal. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, what was it like getting to see that sticker fly and come back? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. 
When Rhett was a little boy, before he knew any limitations, he said he wanted to win the Heisman, be an astronaut, and then retire on the back of a garbage truck because he thought it was cool to hang out the back of a truck. And so uh, to see this go to space, it was very emotional. It was amazing. We were crying. We were cheering. But our boy got to go to space, and he landed. Uh, he got to come back, and in real life, he's not going to get to come back. But it was just something so alive and so real about this and fulfilling a little of his dream. He actually started kindergarten 11 years ago today, and the hope and the promise that we had of all that was ahead. And although we lost him in an ATV accident, um, Today, we didn't feel like we lost him. We felt like we got something back today. And it's a great way to keep his legacy going on. I mean, SpaceX has done something for us, too. All the attention that it's brought to the revolution. I mean, we're a small town. We don't have famous names. We don't have a lot of money. We don't have any of those things. And so it's hard to keep something alive when you don't have fame and fortune to go along with it. And so SpaceX, by doing this, has really helped us the yeah, just keep it going, revolution. right. Get it out there. Let's get it going. Let's do something really big to keep Rhett's legacy alive. And the legacy and the revolution is about helping people, helping people who may find themselves down on their luck. Um, we know now what it feels like to grieve, and it's about helping grieving parents. Um, little things, remembering birthdays of their children, uh, sending them little things to let them know, hey, your kid meant something, and it's... They're worth remembering because we know now how important that is. So, how's how much does this mean to you, knowing that they have the testing facility in McGregor and that SpaceX is willing to do this for you? Yeah, wow, that uh, it's kind of overwhelming a little bit. Uh, I didn't know in 2003, the first time I had the pleasure of meeting Elon, that it would turn into this. We had a launch uh, or an upright test stand. There was a former company that attempted in some small fashion what SpaceX has really done. And they built an upright test stand that's now obsolete. And uh, we signed a lease with them, and they walked away, owing us a bunch of money. And so Elon comes along, and I, I think it's 2003, and says, hey, I want to I wanna send rockets into space. I'm going to uh, send satellites into space. And we were all a bit skeptical, but we had this test stand and a lot of land. And so we say, okay, what do we have to lose? And so the relationship began then in 2003 uh, with just a few people, it seems like, out there. And, and now there are a thousand people from time to time running around out there with uh, some of the brightest and best minds in the world, energetic, passionate about what they do, and, uh, and they're givers. What you see around here from SpaceX is real. They're very much givers. They want to change the world, but they've got a real purpose behind what they do also, and that is You're making mankind so better. Community to yeah. our schools, pencils, backpacks, Kleenexes. I know that sounds not, not a lot, but some, in the city we live in, there is some poverty, School and supplies. they make sure people don't go without. And they're always quick to uh, support local community causes. Have picnics for the community. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a very good give-and-take relationship between the city and SpaceX. And so to get this opportunity to be invited out here to kind of see what a lot of people would never get to see, and I would like to think that most of that is because of Rhett, 
not because I'm the mayor. But you also get to see the work that your community is doing as well. Our community has done great work, and they've sacrificed some too. It hasn't always been easy to have the rumbling uh, day and, and sometimes at night out there, and so there was a little bit of a, a sales pitch that had to go on from City Hall to the community. But that didn't last long. I mean, we all see what SpaceX has done, the kind of people they have, and what they bring to our community. So uh, the community's totally behind SpaceX and what they're trying to accomplish. And this rent revolution doesn't have to just stay in McGregor, right? How can people around the world who listen continue this revolution? Lorna? Well, for one thing, we even said this in Rhett's obituary, we didn't know what to tell people to give to, so we said give the best of yourself away. Give your heart, give your kindness. Lift people up instead of put them down. Uh, we do have a website, www.rettrevolution.com, and we're just getting started. We've had an investor from Houston give some money, and um, we just want to help people. We want to help people that are in need, and we want to help grieving parents. And um, if you have any ideas how to do that, we're up. We're up for listening. But, but your idea is is great, uh, the, the question you asked, because, yes, everything has to start locally. But if I were to allow myself to dream, it would be much more than just local. It would be local and then regionally and then just bigger and beyond in the name of simply, hey, let's let's help one another. Those uh, the outcasts, those that are on the verge, those are on the margins, those are on the fringes. Those who just find themselves hurting. Yeah, man, help them. And sometimes that requires money, but a lot of times that just requires someone sitting down beside them and trying to help them out, just being friendly. I mean, uh, that, that's what Rhett did so well, so naturally, so easily. Not because he was supposed to. There was no to. such thing as an outcast around No Rhett. strings attached. No strings attached. He was just a good kid. A big smile, a big heart, and... A unique way of loving people. I was a teacher. I was actually Rhett's teacher when he died, uh, and... We had iPads, and so I could communicate with the class, with the kids, and, and and they could communicate with me. And I had a couple of them. One kid who the world might not say was so popular sent me a text and said Rhett loves, or an email and said Rhett loved everybody, even me. And I said, Well, of course he loves you. What do you mean, even me? And another kid said, Absolutely nobody told me happy birthday this year, but Rhett. And I'm not saying Rhett did everything right, but Rhett just loved people. He was ornery. He was ornery. And, um, but that's but he who was he was. Good. It was just naturally he had an eye out for people. And, it, and that's what's so amazing is a lot of kids at that age of 15 years old, you have to tell them to do those things. You have to tell them to be nice. You have to tell them to be kind. You have to tell them to be Includers. humble. You have to tell them to include people. You don't have to tell Rhett that. And again, we don't As take credit for that. As a matter of fact, we watched Rhett and thought, we need to do better. Yeah. We need to be more includers. We need to be less offended. Rhett, he just didn't take on didn't an judge. offense. It didn't work out. No offense is taken. I used to tell Jimmy, how is it that Rhett, um, he just overlooks everything. But what we finally decided is Rhett didn't see it. What he chose to do was look at the good. And so you don't have to overlook something you don't see. And he saw the good in everybody. And wow, we could all, that's what we could all do. We could all start looking for the good in people. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for giving us an opportunity to share. Yes, happy to do it.
I'm catching my breath, Sawyer. I'll be honest. Uh, first, I want to go ahead and extend my thanks to SpaceX for giving this family um, the opportunity to go ahead and uh, remember their child in such a wow, in such a breathtaking manner. I'm I've got goosebumps just listening to these two parents describe their 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 fallen child, and I'm. I'm totally speechless. Uh, I, I I have to love how this little guy's dreams were. He wanted to go ahead and and uh, win the Heisman, become an astronaut, and and finish up on the back of a garbage truck because he loved uh, riding on the back of trucks. He didn't may not have gotten the Heisman, but Rhett, gosh darn it, you you became an astronaut, and yeah, you rode on the back of a truck, and what a truck it was that first stage. But uh, again, my 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 sincere congratulations to uh, the folks over at SpaceX, and my sincere you know for making all of this happen, and just this one little token. Um, of of remembrance and how it 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 touched this family in this in an indescribable way um and i hopeful hopefully it will help the community of mcgregor which spacex is um, entrenched in and uh help that community heal from this loss and this also says a lot about spacex too they are trying to be a good neighbor. They're trying to go ahead and and instill themselves into the community and and make sure that they know that yeah we're we're here you know we are a formidable force in, in in the space industry, but gosh darn it we've got a heart here too and we want to support the individuals in any way shape or form that we can um, that work for us. What I really love about the story is how it highlights the human impact of space. You know, this was an uncrewed mission, but, you know, just because rockets and spacecrafts don't have people on them doesn't mean it's not carrying the the hopes and the dreams and the heartaches of, of all the people that are involved in working and supporting these missions. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, a town that's supported probably a lot in part by SpaceX. And so I just love this story on so many levels for so many reasons. But what I really love is how it it just highlights that that space is a human endeavor at its heart. Yeah, agreed, Kat. That's I, I couldn't have put it more succinctly. I pulled up the the website that Rhett's mom was talking about, and uh, it is uh, www.rettrevolution.org, and it kind of describes what's going on right now. They, as um, Rhett's mom said. It's in a you know sort of startup state right now, but keep an eye on things. Uh, there is a support and donate button over there. Not active yet, but uh, uh, stay tuned. It will probably soon will be. Hey, Sawyer, real quick question for you. D- the decal came off the vehicle, and, and the parents have it? Supposedly, from what SpaceX had said, is that they got a glimpse of it, and some of it did survive. Uh, after that interview, they were given the chance to actually do something extremely rare, and they were taken out to Landing Zone 1 with the Falcon still on it to get to see the sticker. Uh, and then they said it would take a few days, and SpaceX would give them the sticker. Uh, before the launch, also amazing, was that uh, members of the community, uh, they created a banner. 
uh, and the banner was inside the the HIF, the Horizontal Integration Facility, uh, right outside Pad 39A, where they assembled everything. It was made by the community, and as they went to tour it, they saw the sign that said, Fly High Ret Jet. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm getting goosebumps. Seriously, folks. And this is... Wow. Um... I, I mean, uh, what a tribute. And somewhere, I hope this little 15-year-old uh, is looking down on all this and smiling. Um, because uh, it's... I, and, um, again, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm running out of things to say here because I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. I, I know on the flip side of this, United Launch Alliance has a tendency to, to dedicate... Um, their some of their launches to uh, uh, fallen associates of ULA that had served the company well and, and our nation well. Um, and I believe they also uh, had dedicated a launch to one of the firefighters that was uh, lost over in uh, Van Vandenberg Air Force Base fighting the fires there from last year. But this was something... Um, I I I I'm I'm totally speechless, um, and uh, I I don't know if uh, anybody else is holding back some tears, but uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I've got a box of tissues sitting right here. I'm about ready to grab one. It was um, it was not easy to do the scene during the interview, and we ended up talking for about thirty more minutes or so afterwards, just with the family about my story, about their story. Uh, we took some great pictures together, and they were saying how. You know, Rhett would have just loved all of this and all of us, and he would have come up to me and asked to race and all of that. And it was just, <laughs> it, it was amazing. And uh, I should say, uh, there's a great uh, video and photo of this taken as well by uh, the woman who helped introduce me to the family, Julie Hayes, with KWXT. Uh, and there's a great shot of them with the booster landed. And on the back of their shirts, it says, Rhett, we love you to space them back. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that's just, Wow. I, I want to put this out to everybody out there right now listening. We'll have pictures of him and of me with the family and everything in the uh, show notes as well. I want to see how far we can take this. This is an amazing family. Jimmy and Lorna Herring were spectacular people to give me the opportunity to talk with them as long as they did, to share their story and just how inspiring and it was and that's one of those stories that it's great hearing about the science, it's great hearing the launch audio, but these are the ones that I love going to these launches for and getting to hear and things like that. And I want to spread this RET revolution as far as we can. Do kind things, help people in need, be selfless. And I want you guys to tweet any of these actions or post them on Facebook with a hashtag RET revolution. Because again, in the word revolution, love is in there, spelled backwards and highlighted. And it's all about love. So I, I want to see how far we can take this around the world because we were talking afterwards and they, like they said in the interview, you know, it, to start off small in the community level and then they were hoping to expand outward from there and I want to see how far we can send this around the world. So please tweet using hashtag RetRevolution or post it on Facebook using RetRevolution and tag us at Talking Space. And I want to share this with the family as I've become friends with them now. Uh, and tell tell us where you're from and what you're doing so that way I can send this as a big thank you to them. So please, Talking Space listeners, I'm calling on you to see what we can do for this family to help spread their message. The story of these parents trying to take this disaster and, and turning it into a 
um, turning in, into something positive is, I mean, the courage of these two folks is just amazing. And uh, we'll see what we can do for them, Sawyer. If you don't have Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, email us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Just tell us where you're from and uh, some messages to pass along to the family, and I will get that sent along to them. And uh, I'm sure they'll be very grateful to hear that their son's message is continuing as far across the globe as we can. All right. Uh, so once again, that booster is back with the sticker, and Dragon was successfully grappled and berthed to the International Space Station two days after launch, bright and early, about 7 a.m. in the morning, Eastern Time, with all of that science taken to the International Space Station. Now, we were recently at the International Space Station Research and Development Conference, and now with this launch, we've been highlighting the International Space Station a lot. A few years back, we got to talk with Mike Suffordini, who was in charge of the International Space Station program. Well, we haven't gotten to talk to the new person in charge of the ISS program yet, until now. While I was down at the Kennedy Space Center, I got to talk over the phone with Kirk Shireman, who's the current lead of the International Space Station program, about the state of the ISS, where it's going, and uh, how it's doing, and, well, what keeps them up at night, too. So... Here is Kirk Shireman, head of the International Space Station program, in an exclusive post-ISS RDC interview only with Talking Space. So first off, congratulations on the successful launch of the CRS-12 mission to the space station. Thanks very much. We're, we're very happy about that. Um, beautiful launch yesterday, and, uh, you know, the, uh, we have to, like many events on board the space station, we kind of have to thread the needle on, in terms of schedule and and uh, we really needed it to go off yesterday to make the schedule work out, so we're very happy about it. Right, with the Russian spacewalk upcoming, that was right on time. Um, so I was wondering how you managed to balance the, the resupply vehicle arrival with, you know, balancing SpaceX versus Orbital and with Sierra Nevada coming in with the second contract. How do you decide who gets which contract to the station? Sure. Well, you know, each vehicle has different capabilities. Some vehicles can take um, external cargo. Some, of course, can can bring cargo home. Uh, some actually are very efficient for bringing home trash, which, interestingly enough, is a is a big issue for us. So, we uh, we first lay out if everything goes normal, what what is the uh, what's a good plan, what's a good mix, and then we think about off nominal situations. You know, it's certainly possible that one. One company might have issues um, and not be able to uh, to launch when we need them to launch, and therefore we want to make sure that we have, um, I'll call it dissimilar redundancy. We have, we have another vehicle going up uh, reasonably close to that so that if we miss one vehicle, we have another vehicle going. So we, we kind of balance the nominal and the off-nominal to create a good uh, traffic flow for cargo and, and more importantly, even uh, our, our utilization. So it's really considering both of those things along with the unique capabilities of the vehicles. Right, because I know that um, there had just been the pushback slightly of um, the Cygnus vehicle, and that's allowing for more cargo to be loaded up as well. Uh, is that part of the reason with that? Is the spacing or with the trash? Or Well, actually, you know, d delaying it, y yes. So it's mostly to uh, to make sure we're we are more efficiently utilizing the vehicles. So that's part of it. Um, get a better better spacing of, of all the vehicles that are coming and going. Um, 
as you delay launches, you know, sometimes you, you make the trash situation worse. And so in this particular instance, we've made the trash situation worse, but we're watching it, and it's it's not a uh, not a big issue for us, but it's something that we, we certainly pay attention to. So, um, you know, in the future, when we go to, to our cargo resupply 2 uh, contract, the vehicles are actually a little bigger, and they'll fly less frequently, and which means you basically have to have volume to store your trash. You basically, you know, in, in your house, you may have trash pickup twice a week, and you may accumulate a little bit of trash, but imagine if your trash was coming, you know, three times a year. If you only had three, three, three trash pickups a year, what your house would be like. And uh, that's, it's not quite that bad on ISS, but that gives you an idea of the, of the magnitude of what we're talking about. So sticking with the commercial side a little bit, uh, commercial crew is coming up. It has been you know delayed over time, but finally getting towards uh, launches to the station. Um, how do you feel that the progress has been coming along with commercial crew? Is it slower than you were hoping for? Is it faster than you're hoping for, the pacing of that, and how you're looking to start scheduling that for the future? Sure. Well, you know, I, I know from my experience that um, – Building new vehicles is a very difficult and complicated task. And so my, my personal expectation is they would not meet their original dates. Um, you know, the, the same thing happened with, with cargo, and, and flying, flying humans is even harder. One is your, your expectation of, uh, uh, you know, of testing and, uh, and um, confidence in the success is greater for human beings than it is for cargo. But but really, there's additional systems. There's a lot of extra systems that are on a human vehicle that are not on a cargo vehicle, uh, just abort systems, for instance, or or systems that keep the crew uh, healthy, you know, oxygen, feeding oxygen to the cabin and, and removing carbon dioxide and toilets and all those things that you have to have if humans are on board. So I, uh, it's basically, I would say, it is meeting my expectations. Um, I know the companies are working very hard. NASA is working very hard with both SpaceX and Boeing to to uh, help make uh, make us all successful. So I, I would say uh, it's it's going on like we expected. We tried to build in some, I'll call it margin. Um, you know, we knew uh, that uh, they were likely to be late, and so my predecessor, Mike Suffordini, had made arrangements to fly to have some additional Soyuz seats. Uh, to overlap the time when commercial crew was was uh, intended to start flying, and uh, it's a good thing he did that because because that that's basically what we'll be uh, flying on on next year. So, um, you know, I, 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 it, it's going about like we expected. Uh, we have margin in the system, and uh, and, I, and I know we'll be successful in the end. So, does this allow you to start planning for the future to add additional crew, bringing? the station possibly up to seven people total or um is it more the focus of just getting it going first and then looking at that after it certainly commercial crew will give us the opportunity to go to seven seven crew total uh at seven crew total we'll have four usos and three russian segment crew members um and the interesting thing is uh here earlier this this calendar year we entered into an agreement that basically will allow us to have four usos crew members a little earlier so starting in September um, of this year, uh, the 13th, 14th of uh, September, we actually launch, uh, we'll actually have four USOS crew members on board. Um, 
actually today, even today, we have four USOS crew members on board for a short period of time. So we are we are really um, we are really already at that point, basically because of of the Russians' decision to go down and our ability to go uh, to go get that extra spot. So we, uh, I would say commercial crew coming online will allow us to continue to have four USOS crew members on board. So uh, we, we're we're counting on uh, on um, those guys, all those crew members, to to produce all the uh, results that uh, that our country is is counting on us to produce. As the manager of the ISS, what keeps you up at night in regards to station? Well, yeah, one thing that keeps me up at night is the fact that people around the world are involved. So you end up having to be up at different hours of the night just to make contact with with your counterparts around the world, but. Um, really, the, in, in, in seriousness, I know you're asking about what what are the issues that I worry about. You know, I, I worry a lot about um, some of the systems on board. You know, um, and uh, for instance, our micrometeorite and orbital debris protection system is uh, is good is a good system, but uh, but if you look at the total risk to the station, the the, the highest risk to the station is that we'll be will be hit by a piece of debris. So NASA, together with the, the Air Force, uh, works to, to monitor that debris. So that's something that I worry about uh, a lot. I worry about all, all these vehicles coming and going to the space station. Are they going to fly when we need them to fly? And how do we fit all these activities together? Um, Every once in a while, we have a failure and have to go outside at a at a moment's notice. If you remember earlier this year, we had uh, a computer outside that that put us, you know, basically one failure away from some really bad things happening to us, and so we had to go outside and and we went outside in about three days to go make a repair there. So those kinds of activities, but um, you know, I, I would say I, in general I sleep really well. Uh, so I have lots of worries, but nothing that really keeps me awake at night. How well would you say the station is positioned right now for the future in terms of supplies, in terms of crew, in terms of outlook, in terms of science? Yeah, I mean, the station's in great shape right now. The, the vehicle, the machine itself is in excellent condition. Um, it, it really is performing better than, um, than uh, you know, it was predicted when it was manufactured, when it was built, assembled. Um, it, it really isn't showing signs of aging. So if you look at the failure rates, by and large, they're still less than we expect. And, you know, as, as machines age, they start having more and more failures, and and uh, we're really not seeing that. So uh, we're very happy with the performance of the, of the space station. Um, in terms of uh, supplies on board, we're in great shape. We have four people here recently of, um, of Paolo and, uh, and Randy Bresnik. Uh, and Sergey, um, we have four USOS crew members up there for the first time ever, um, and so um, lots of science going on uh, right now. And in fact, when when um, the Dragon arrives tomorrow, we'll have 30 days of pretty uh, pretty intense work for the crew to uh, to to do all that work uh, and and get it ready to bring home with the Dragon. So, I th I think in general the space station is in great shape. The really the exciting thing for me is the future. You know, there's a lot of commercial enterprises, and I'm by commercial I'm not don't think just of like SpaceX and Boeing and Orbital ATK in terms of these commercial transportation vehicles. There's a lot of companies out there that have interest in doing commercial activities on the space station. 
so nanoracks made in space tech shot uh, alpha space there's all these companies these these i would say smaller companies that have ideas of how to uh to conduct uh, you know commerce in space and uh, and they're making a go of it and and ISS is a part of that so i'm really excited for the future of, of how we will um, how we will help uh, not only help these companies grow, but then get out of their way as they do grow. I'm also really excited about the future of the of the research, even the the the, um, the government sponsored research that's going on. You know, Alpha Magneto Spectrometer um, is actually rewriting the physics books, uh, uh, and uh, so that's something that's really exciting. Uh, and that's just one. Uh, we're, we're learning all kinds of things about flames and about uh, you know about uh, the way cells behave and DNA uh, behaves in space. So all these things are really exciting, and they're going to they're going to change the way that people live their lives on the planet. So I'm I'm really excited about ISS having a, a place, uh, a part of that uh, uh, experience for everyone on the planet. What do you hope uh, that ISS will be remembered for? You know, uh, I first of all I, I think I think the uh, I think ISS will be remembered for some of the discoveries that will be made on ISS. And, you know, in the end, you know, 100 years or 200 years from now, they might just remember the discoveries and maybe not ISS, but that's okay too. Um, I think ISS will be remembered for, for the time when, when humans really left the planet, um, you know, for a long period of time. And, you know, today, as we stand here, um, we are almost 17 years where, uh, uh, since the first human, since humans left the planet. And, and I, you know, what's exciting to me is I think, I think back, I look at some of our kids, some of our children, and, and um, there are kids out there driving today who have never known a time in their lifetime when humans didn't work off the planet. It's almost inconceivable to those people, to those those kids, that that humans don't live off the planet, and uh, and then there are people like me who knew a time when humans had never flown in space before, and so I think ISS will be remembered for that transition, really, from from when humans became a, a species off off of planet Earth, and uh, I think uh, I think ISS is is playing and will continue to play a key role. And that transition of our species from a, from a terrestrial species to a uh, to a species that's uh, beyond a single planet. I know we're about to run out of time, so uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add? You know, I, I think we've hit the high points. I, I, you know, uh, to me, ISS is not about the legacy of ISS. Uh, to me, ISS is about what it go, what it does for the United States and what it can do for for the you know the, the population as a whole. So today. The research that's done on ISS that has been done on ISS has touched 95 countries around the world, 95 countries around the world. So it's much broader than just the partnership that's doing ISS, certainly broader than the ISS. And, uh, and I think we have made a difference for, for the people of the United States and the people of the planet, and, and I really hope uh, as we go forward that we, uh, that we continue that and maybe even expand it. I, I really hope that ISS is uh, – is a turning point for uh, for our country uh, in in space commerce and in in terms of of, uh, 
human exploration of space. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you talking with us. Yeah, it was great. Uh, it was nice to meet you, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll get to see you again. If not before, maybe we'll see you in uh, San Francisco at next year's uh, ISS Research and Development Conference. There was a few really interesting things in there. The big one is the commercial crew vehicles. The reason I asked about that is... Um, during the pre-launch press conference, they announced that the OA-8 mission, which last episode we had just announced as October 11th, is being pushed back to November 10th again. So it's now SpaceX CRS-12, then it was going to be Progress in October, Cygnus November, SpaceX CRS-13 December, OA-9 would be in March. They said that by pushing it back that month, uh, the vehicle was not full, and as a result, allowed them to put in 500 kilograms more of science into it, just by delaying by one month. Yes, uh, Cygnus is, uh, is is quite big. I believe it's about the height of a, an adult giraffe, and, and it's really, really... I mean, Sawyer, you and I were talking about this. The volume inside Cygnus as compared to Dragon is uh, a lot higher. So it takes a little bit more to go ahead and fill up a, a Cygnus spacecraft than it does does the Dragon. A couple of notes that I was writing here. Uh, it, it, uh, in relationship to commercial crew, it seems like he was very, very pragmatic about the whole thing. Um, he understood that uh, R&D programs take time. And he knew right from the get-go that there were going to be problems. Both sides were going to uh, run into issues, and sure enough, they have. But, uh, you know, he felt in, in the end that uh, they'd get what they want, which were two very safe, very good, robust spacecraft to take crew to and from the International Space Station. And I, I thought that was, that was a very interesting view of looking at it. As far as what kept him up at night, as far as the orbital debris issue, yeah, I could understand how that, uh, how that would kind of work out. Also, as, as far as the visiting vehicles are concerned, uh, yeah, there's a lot of traffic, and Sawyer, you just highlighted it. Um, it I mean, and, and that, that cadence is going to continue. The interesting thing, though, Sawyer, was the fact that the ISS is holding up a lot better than than what everybody anticipated because, I, you know, we, we all recall, at least this members of this audience might, the Russian space station Mir and how it was literally falling apart toward the end. ISS has been rather a robust beast, and it it looks like that uh, it's situated for the future, and is probably going to go the distance at least through twenty twenty four. I know we're going to probably take stock of that and see if we're going to push to twenty twenty eight or not. I don't know, you know that that that's a story for another day, but it looks like too that. It, it would probably go the distance. And I'm just trying to picture, too, and, and this anybody that owns a home or owns a small apartment can relate. Just picture your, your garbage delivery or your garbage pickup being, you know, what was it, about three times a year? So you can kind of understand the problem that they have on, on ISS, keeping the, the trash out of harm's way. And I'm sure that, that, that new... Um, one of the former MPLMs or the multipurpose logistics modules that are attached to the ISS now uh, that, the sh that the shuttle had brought up uh, on one of its last missions is coming in real handy right now. But uh, again, it was a fascinating interview, Sawyer, and, and, and thanks for uh, delivering that to us. To me, it just really, really shows what a robust beast that we have orbiting above us, and it, we should be looking at many more years of uh, good science coming out of it. And... Uh, 
hopefully some good uh, good things coming out, not only for uh, the future of, uh, of human spaceflight, but also for uh, the future of humanity here on Earth. Exactly, yeah. Again, with that garbage delivery times, and, you know, uh, it's interesting that he expected the delay in uh, commercial crew, which, I mean, we all kind of did, but to hear the program manager say, yeah, we kind of figured that those dates were never going to happen is fascinating and again the fact that now he's basically said the nation is relying upon these companies putting the pressure on commercial crew there was just a lot of fascinating things in this interview and it may not have been the hardest pressing interview and we'll save that for next time but uh there's just so much learned about the station in just that little 15 minute interview in my opinion yes and um i i want to thank uh kirk shamardine for uh taking the time to talk to us uh on and talk to uh our audience here on Talking Space, and uh, thanks a whole bunch for uh, for doing that. Yes, thank you to Kirk Shireman, and thank you to everyone at uh, NASA Johnson Space Center Public Affairs for helping to set this up. We had originally hoped to do this at the ISS conference, but due to some scheduling conflicts, that never happened, so the fact that they were able to set up uh, the phone interview with this is greatly appreciated, and I hope you guys appreciated uh, hearing about that, too. And with that, I think that's the perfect way to end this episode, is jam-packed with a whole bunch of science and some great stories and uh thank you all for listening and thank you for joining us tonight gene mcculga thanks sawyer this has been a roller coaster ride uh, loaded with emotions i hope our audience enjoyed it and uh just want to go ahead and give a shout out to the folks over at bbc5 uh, i had a grand old time with them uh talking some cassini uh with them and also just a reminder we have a birthday coming up. Uh, the Voyager spacecraft, uh, I believe it's this weekend, turns 40 years old. These, these two are the, uh, the furthest emissaries that the human species has sent aloft, and they, they're both s- still doing some good science. But they also, after they're, they're, they're done, they're also a bit of a, a message in a bottle, if you will. They both have those, uh, those golden uh, phonograph records attached with, with uh, sounds of Earth and Hopefully, if there's an alien species millions of years from now running around picking up stray derelicts, they'll uh, they'll learn a little bit about us. So uh, hats off to the Voyager team. Yes, indeed. Congratulations to the Voyager team on that. Thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. It was a lovely uh, return to launch for me. (laughs) And again, I just want to say thank you so much to... um, Rhett's parents for sharing his story with us and with you, Sawyer, because I certainly just, I mean, my first time was hearing it was during this recording, so it definitely touched my heart, and I hope um, it inspires everyone like it has inspired me to go out and, and to be kind in Rhett's name and Rhett's revolution. So thank you so much, and it was lovely to be back. I'm looking forward to, to being back for a few episodes until I go off to Australia to present at the International Astronautical Congress, which will be a lot of fun, and I promise I will bring lots of information back to share with all of you here on the podcast. So thanks, guys. It was great being back. And thank you all for joining us, Mark Ratterman. See you next time. And thank you, as always, for listening. We hope you'll do some good acts of kindness in honor of the RET revolution. And uh, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Mm-hmm.